this is also where Rome is entering its triumvirate era, which originally was just a diumvirate uh, between uh, Pompey and Crassus. So one really has to ask, what effect did all of this have on the Romans and their outlook on the East? I mean, Roman at this point, they were just on a roll, right? I mean, they completely, completely dominated the East, uh, mm. the Asia Minor, um, and even even Armenia, which used to be seen mm. by the Persian as one of their uh, core vassal states. And they completely dominated the Eastern Mediterranean seaboard. So... Um, they, they probably at this point have less absolutely uh, motivation to make concession to the Parthians, right? Absolutely. I mean, that is precisely what's taking place. We're seeing the Roman juggernaut. It's completely unstoppable at this point. It has momentum. And there is a sense of political instability in the Parthian Empire. The, uh, the uh, overall political landscape there has given rise to noble houses, which means that the monarchy itself has been weakened fundamentally. We have to remember that the Parthians were not always seen as this later on confederate-style empire, as it so often gets compared to. It was actually, in most ways, an absolute monarchy. And uh, as we had seen during the episode of Mithridates II, uh, there, there couldn't have been much space for noble houses to have operated. Sure, there, ha there should have been, or must have been rather, there must have been some kind of uh, way uh, that power was shared organically throughout the empire through noble houses who would uh, subsequently hold fiefdoms and the like, but not in the manner uh, if, if the empire was held together by a strong monarch. But in times of weakness, you start to see ambitious noble houses pick up the pace and, uh, and, and grow into that role. So at this point in history, we really have to ask, like, what were the Romans thinking at this point? Were the Parthians simply going to be next in the line of oriental foes yet to be subdued, just like Pontus, Armenia, the kingdom of Colchis, and the uh, Caucasian Iberia. Uh, and we have to be honest here, by the looks of it, yes, the Romans had plenty of reasons to be cocky at this point, because if they had anything to judge from the battle of Tigranokerta or from the siege of Artashata uh, or the battles of Lycus, they had uh, completely dominated the Hellenistic mode of warfare. The, the Marian, the Marian legion was superior. It was demonstrably superior to the Hellenistic mode of fighting. It had proven itself superior to the pike man, the, the, the pike phalanxes. It had proven itself superior to Armenian foot soldiers, the Caucasian or archers and the like, e even to the Mithridates scythe chariots. Uh, 100 years prior, during the Battle of Magnesia versus the Seleucids, uh, 
the Romans had bested the Seleucids, even though the Seleucids had this magnificent array of heavy cavalry, cataphract cavalry. They had elephants, they had pikemen, they had light infantry, archers, and the like. They still had defeated Seleucids uh, and forced upon them uh, the, uh, the humiliating Treaty of Apamea that, that followed, which had actually decimated Seleucid power in Asia Minor. So the Romans, and this was before the Marian reforms, by the way. So this is what the Romans had achieved with the manipular uh, system that they had previously. Now imagine the Roman war machine after the Marian reforms. It was completely unstoppable. It had every credential speaking for it. It was probably... Now, is it because the Roman... Uh, legions are just much more maneuverable and flexible than the Greek phalanxes, or was it just because the Roman has much better discipline? Absolutely the former. I think we sort of have to understand that soldiers back in the, the day, they were all disciplined almost comparably. I think that is a fair assumption to make. But I think it was the inherent flexibility of the Roman system that had gained them not only the ability to absorb the sort of disastrous losses that they had uh, prior to the Marian reforms, like during the Cimbrian Wars, uh, like the Battle of Arausio, uh, a complete bloodbath, by, by the way, the, the numbers that we read uh, of, of, of the casualties, there, it's, it's outlandish. It must have been like a completely reddened battlefield at that point. But it had also forced a change in the Roman system, the Marian reforms. And this had actually uh, turned the Roman system into one, not just of great tactical flexibility, but one which demanded flexibility uh, depending on the foe. So it wasn't a system that, that completely was absorbed with the idea that it was superior. It, it, it was modular in the light that it could uh, co-opt uh, auxiliaries and, and the like. It could co-opt native troops and assign them a very specific role while they still had a Roman core to it all. In way, um, I'm going to be asked a completely rookie question. So what did the Marian reform give the Romans? What did it improve? First of all, uh, the Marian reforms has more to do with the economic management of the military. So we have, for instance, the Roman soldier. What was the Roman soldier before? Was he anything more than just an emancipated serf? Well, the thing is, there were new requirements upon the uh, upon the soldiers so you have for instance the inclusion of uh, freemen but they did not own any land they were the so-called uh, the capite sensi and they had no property to their name previously there, there were very stringent requirements as to what the officer ranks would have had to have so what actually happened here in the Marian reforms is that we see the beginnings of a meritocratic system that allowed a caste of professional soldiers to enter into the ranks. And I think 
this this shift in, in military philosophy alone did more than half of the work. But also you have uh, uh, reforms in terms of equipment. Uh, you have, for instance, the uh, the introduction of the Montefortino-style helmets uh, and chain. Uh, uh, well, chainmail is is a word that's actually detested by a lot of people. So they were given uh, mail armor, uh, mail cuirasses with with with, uh, with shoulder reinforcements, and then the oval shields and. Uh, the, the the famous gladius short sword and uh, and and the javelins the pilum so when we think of the classical roman legionnaire this is what we're thinking of we're thinking about the marian reforms uh, and not so much the system that came before it uh, like for instance the hastati and the velites and the uh, the, the principes and the, uh, the triari, it wasn't like the manipular system. So now we, we begin to see the true legion emerge of the Marian reforms. So I think when most people think of the Romans, the Roman soldiers, they are instantly thinking of the soldier of the Marian reforms and not so much what was before it, so, so to speak. Okay, so now we... Um, I mean, is Roman legion at this point just pretty much unstoppable? There's no uh, forces in the East that's capable of stopping this Roman juggernaut? Well, they were not invincible. I mean, we have we have to be on on on. Uh, I think we have to be sort of uh, candid here that there is no such thing as a flawless soldier. I think every uh, troop and, and the type that they represent have their own uh, inherent weaknesses. Uh, but I think at this point, the Marian uh, infantryman was the very apex of infantry development. It was the refinement of the infantry doctrine. Uh, so I think we have to also see them for what they are, but also that they were not invincible. And we come to a point later on in history how this weakness was actually exploited during the Battle of Karai. But during this time, during this state of, of the Parthian Empire, during its disarray and its state of weakness, I think, I think at that point, nothing could counter it at that point. I think political machinations had more to do with, with giving Parthians the time that they needed so uh, I think we have to really appreciate the times for what they were. Uh, and I think with, with this entire uh, setting in 65 BC, when the Parthians were chased out of, uh, out of the uh, uh, Mesopotamia, I think at that point, we begin to see a sort of consolidation needs to happen inside of Parthia, otherwise they're going to be screwed. So what actually does happen uh, is that now we get the proper context for the Battle of Karai itself. We see now the importance of this alliance, this, this network of alliances in the region and how necessary they are to maintain the stability in the region. And now that they had sort of been shuffled back and forth, we also see that they are not inherently stable. 
So we should also enter a conversation about what actually happens in Parthia shortly afterwards. Uh, and that is the murder of Phraates III. The king of Parthia at that time is murdered by his two own sons, probably in a bid for power. Uh, so what the Parthians actually needed at the time, the opposite happened. It was actually an assassination that happened at this point, and it was between his, his own two sons. And this is actually uh, very important to uh, have in mind because this kind of sets a nasty trend in Parthian history where we see uh, either uh, patricide or we see fratricide, uh, completely devastating aspects in Parthian history, which has, uh, which has hampered it, uh, in my opinion. Now, what actually has happened here is that after uh, Mithradates III and Orodes II, as, as we call them now, after they have murdered their, their father, Phratis III, uh, we come to the question, who should succeed this empire? And by law, as the older sibling, Mithradates has the right to the crown. But the choice of Mithradates doesn't sit well with the nobility. And we have to take into account that the nobility in Parthia has, uh, has been enlarged. It has been emboldened. It has, it has gained power uh, during this time. So Mithradates is, is actually pushed aside and Orodes is actually favored. And this is actually where, where one of the great clans in, uh, in Iranian history, the Suram Pahlavs, uh, are actually having a decisive role in, in, in this. So it's one of the great families, one of the great Parthian clans. Uh, it's based in Sakastana in eastern Iran, and uh, it's, it's led by this brilliant, brilliant chieftain who, who we should know in history as Surenas. Uh, anyway, through the help of Surenas, Mithradatis III is defeated and relegated as a king of Medea, so Orodes is instead installed into the throne of Parthia, and uh, uh, and Mithradates is sort of relegated as 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 a kind of a viceroy figure, and he's not all too happy about it because he still thinks he should be the king because he is the senior sibling. Uh, so, what happens? Mithradates slips away to the west, and he is now something of a fugitive. Uh, and he's now appealing to the Romans to restore him to the throne, which is exactly what he happens now that uh, he comes to uh, the audience of uh, the governor of Syria, Aulus Gabinius, who used to be part of Pompey's faction. So after a little bit of back and forth there, uh, Aulus Gabinius accepts Mithridates' appeal, and they sort of engineer this, this grand campaign of restoring Mithridates to the throne of Parthia. And this is also, this, this sets uh, the tone for the so-called Gabinian War in uh, 56 BC. And this is actually a phony war. It, it could have been, been a real hot war, but it was actually a phony war, like the one in 65 BC where the, Ro where the Romans had simply chased off the Parthians without there being an actual battle or a military retaliation of the like. Uh, but something happens along the road of this. Uh, 
man, there, 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 there is actually a much, much more pressing affair happening in Egypt, which was at that time a client state uh, for the Romans. The Ptolemaic Egyptian kingdom had come under the Roman umbrella, and now Ptolemy XII needed uh, Roman help in order to be restored to the Egyptian throne. And now Gabinius was kind of tugged between two sides. One was the, uh, the, affair, the, the, the Parthian affair to the east and now to the west. So I think Gabinius had to go to the west because without Egypt, there wouldn't be any grain shipments to, to Rome. Rome at this time was was completely dependent on food shipments from, from Egypt. The grain shipments were, were a complete game changer during this time. So I think this is also why Gabinius sort of parted ways with Mithridates. And Mithridates had left away with some troops and with some, uh, with some treasures. And, and he simply made it forward to, uh, to the capital region in Mesopotamia towards Babylonia. So... After the whole Egyptian gambit, Gabinius is actually released from his duties, and uh, Crassus is assigned governorship in Syria. The same Crassus from uh, from the Battle of the Colline Gates and from the uh, from the putting down of Spartacus Revolt, uh, and the Parthian affair is also transferred to him. This this entire uh, bid to restore Mithridates to the throne, so. There is an immediate consequence from this departure to Egypt and then this replacement of Aus Gabinius to uh, uh, Egypt and, and the like and his replacement uh, by Crassus. This actually proves fortunate for the faction of Orodes and Surenas because this gives them a full year to prepare for, for, the, for what is to come. The, the thing is that when, when Crassus actually enters the scene here, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a pretty, pretty damn good year for him. You know, 54 BC, uh, Parthian civil war has entered another phase. Now that Mithridates had, had made his bid for Babylonia and, and uh, Seleucia. Uh, and successfully taken those cities and uh, subsequently threatening Orodes' grip to the throne. You know, it's, it's, it's a complete disaster what's happening. So, And he's doing this without much Roman help, right? He probably had some Roman help. He probably didn't uh, depart from Gabinius uh, empty-handed. So probably there was a detachment that followed him to make sure that uh, things were in, in, in their order uh, and oversee matters. I don't think the Romans were ignorant about what was happening in uh, Babylonia. Uh, but I do think they were a little bit uh, cautious about entering the fray immediately uh, because that would have been a blatant uh, violation of the terms uh, set by Pompey and Phratis the third previously. Uh, so anyway, what actually happens here is that Orodes, supported by Serenas, uh, now is in the process of besieging Seleucia and Babylonia. And Mithridates holds fast initially because the Parthians, they have this reputation of not being very good at siege warfare and rather starving out uh, 
the cities into submission rather than trying to take them head on. But this is a very different gambit altogether. And we see that Serenus not only attempts to take the cities, he, he actually does it very efficiently. So Mithridates is actually sending for help. He is, uh, he is actually sending message to uh, who's, whoever is governor in Syria at that point, being Crassus. And Crassus, he's like, yeah, like, I, I don't really need to do this. You know, he doesn't really send a force to provide relief because, let's face it, Mithridates is, is an expendable ally. And if he croaks, if he dies, well, all the better, because it didn't really matter that Mithridates should sit as king. It doesn't matter who sits as, as king on the throne of Parthia. Whoever sits on the throne of Parthia can be made into a client. That's the most important thing, that the Romans were pragmatic in that sense, that they didn't have to stand behind a certain claimant tooth and nail. To the opposite, they could just wait for them to duke it out between each other, You know, see the both of them get weakened in the process, uh, and then just swoop in when both are weak and just claim all the credit anyway. Uh, so basically at this point that the Romans don't see the Parthia as a big threat, right? They don't, they don't. They don't even have a, have a need to divide it up. No. They were just kind of w- watching it as a ripened fruit ready to uh, fall into the Roman lap. So exactly, exactly. And truth be told, it's difficult not to see it that way when when you see this complete state of turmoil on on the east but again orodas had the luxury of employing serenas who who was not just an unusually brilliant general i i'm going to argue that he is actually one of the best generals in all of antiquity uh, for many reasons but in this case he sort of breaks this old parthian stigma of not being able to take the cities in fact in, in the record of Plutarch, uh, which is the favored account here, uh, he is actually the first man to climb the ladders up to the city itself. And that's no mean feat. This was actually one of the biggest cities in all of antiquity, Seleucia. So with this reputation, the, uh, the Parthian forces under Orodas had, had now enjoyed a resurgence. They had enjoyed a great reputation of being able fighters and that they were brilliantly led by a young, energetic commander. So during this entire time, Crassus is taking it kind of easy in Syria. He's sort of collecting treasures. He's sacking the, uh, the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. Uh, he's... He's actually doing what he does the best, and that's collecting taxes, essentially. Uh, in fact, uh, Crassus had developed something of a reputation of not just being miserly, but but being something of a uh, of a of a tax collector figure of the sort. And as you might know, tax collectors are never popular in in any fashion or any form. He's actually reputedly the wealthiest man in Rome, Absolutely. right? I mean, in fact, he used use his uh, wealth to fund basically the rise of Julius Caesar. Oh, absolutely. In fact, before there could be a triumvirate, it was actually a duumvirate between Pompey and Crassus, as I as I mentioned pre- previously. So Julius Caesar is actually the junior member of this triumvirate. But 
more importantly, he is he's Crassus' protege. So Pompey was basically the other part who both were actually trying to screw over, but that has more to do with the uh, Roman rivalries more than it has to do with the uh, context of Cari, anyway. Uh, and here it's kind of important to remember that Crassus was actually awaiting reinforcements precisely from Julius Caesar in Gaul. And not only did he uh, send a detachment of Gallic cavalry, uh, highly trained cavalry, uh, numbering 1,300 men, if I recall correctly, uh, but also they were led by Crassus's own son, Publius Crassus, who was known to be an energetic uh, captain of a sorts. Uh, someone who the soldiers could relate to. So these were these were quality troops. Uh, these were quality reinforcement that, that Crassus had been awaiting. So during the meanwhile, Crassus had also mustered some additional uh, forces locally, like, for instance, uh, Syrian cavalry, Syrian archers, and the like. Uh, and Crassus had also brokered alliances with uh, the neighboring uh, Rambei tribe under King Alcadonius and with the Edessans under King Abgad. Now, they were traditionally under the Parthian sway, but as I mentioned previously, that during this shifting of the political alliances, they had swayed to the Roman side. And this this actually becomes very important to remember, this, this, this uh, network of alliances and how quickly they can shift back and forth uh, so Crassus during this entire time, he, he must at some point know that Mithridates is screwed. You know, he probably just conveniently pretends that, oh, okay, I don't really care about it that much, you know, but he doesn't. So he prepares for a smaller campaign into Syria, the Parthian part of Syria up until the river Balissus, which would be today's river Balikh in today's Syria until Turkey. So during this entire time, Crassus is trying to seek out some kind of Parthian force to make sure that whatever he conquers in the region, he gets to keep. So he seeks out the Parthian satrap Silacus, the, the satrap of, of Upper Mesopotamia. In, uh, and this, this was actually a lopsided battle at Ikna. And this is... Uh, somewhere between the city of Karai and, and somewhere between the city of Nikephorium, uh, later known as uh, Kalinico. Anyway, this, this battle, I mean, it was just no match for the Romans, and uh, Silicus uh, lost it, had to return back to Babylonia to make his report, and this, this gave Crassus a free hand to actually uh, gain the territories uh, in the region. Uh, and as we can see, these cities were majorly Greek populated and pro-Roman in inclination. I think the Greeks saw something more in common with the Romans who were more Greek in character than with the alien Orientals uh, that they saw the Parthians as. Uh, and I think this is important because this has been a region that was under Parthian possession or under Parthian sway at, at the very least, for 90 years. And it had gone over to the Romans without a battle. This was significant. 
So we see the cities like Ikna and Kara and the Nikiforium just switching sides, just like that. But we have also a minor hiccup at the city of Zenodosia, which is also similarly Greek populated. But the governor of Zenodosia, um, for some reason or another, uh, stages an ambush against the Romans, uh, probably in the barracks as they were quartering in the, in the city. But this had achieved very little. It had only given the Romans the perfect excuse to show the newly conquered cities, what would happen if they betrayed the Romans. So what happened was that the city got sacked and uh, the inhabitants were simply sold off to slavery, uh, which, of course, meant more money for Crassus. So what we're seeing here is that this has been a great year for Crassus. 54 BC had been a resounding success for him. And... At this point, he decides, I've had enough. You know, this, this has been good for me. I shouldn't really overstand myself. You know, so he retreats back to uh, Syria. Well, not retreat, but he withdraws back to Syria for quartering. And in the newly conquered region, he stations 8,000 men, I think 7,000 infantry and 1,000 cavalry. And this is where some of the sources condemn him. They 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 can they they condemned him for being uh, for being cautious, o- overly cautious. But I think this is erroneous. I think this is judgment in hindsight. Now that they they know how the battle itself ended up, so Crassus's gains up until that point had been quite effortless. This is very important to have in in mind that he had taken this territory basically without a fight. So. I think it was very prudent of him to think, I've enjoyed this this ripe fruit, and there has been no repercussions for me. I should go back and quarter. And I think this was also quite important because uh, I think Crassus was seeking also to consolidate his for- his forces after the winter. There is a common military uh, saying that you don't. You don't go on campaign over the winter unless you want problems. So it was actually quite quite clever of him to actually withdraw back to Syria to consolidate his forces and plan out a more uh, a more grand campaign, so to speak, into Parthian heartland and to really seek out that set piece battle and to settle this mad matter. This, this 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 matter in a more decisive manner, uh, and we gotta be honest here, the Parthian situation, it's rather shit. You know, it's it's kind of crappy to be honest with you. I mean, it's it's true that they had managed to bring an end to the uh, civil war, but the cities in the Parthian far west in Syria, the Greek cities over there. They, they had been held for 90 years and they had just switched sides without a fight. And this was a really bad sign. So they saw the wider political ramifications and, and immediately came up with the idea that we have to stop this. We have to reverse this. Otherwise, we're going to get screwed. We're, we're going to be torn up to pieces, essentially, even though that might... I mean, up to this point, Roman has just going on from victory to victory, right? They have been on a roll uh, exactly. many years now in the East. Exactly. And part, 
it, it looks like I, I mean I can also see why Crassius is in no hurry because it looks like Parthia is going to fall just matter of time. Mm, exactly. Uh, I think I think this was we have to understand that this entire reputation that Crassus got after the Battle of Cari, that he was not a competent military leader and the like, this is all nonsense because he did only what a good military commander would have done. Quarter over the winter, consolidate your gains, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. But unfortunately, there is a tendency to judge him because of two things. And one is the myth that Easterners, if we can just put them in one umbrella, that they cannot fight. There is, unfortunately, a terrible tendency to dismiss Eastern empires as incapable of fighting, either that they are lacking in martial prowess or something of the like. This is, this is all modern tropes, unfortunately, and one that is going to take some time to rectify because nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, but also that... Crassus had lost to them, you know. So this is also why he had subsequently gained a bad reputation, that he was not on par with Pompey, that he was not on par with Julius Caesar. And I think it's important that we have this, this little modern myth in mind when we assess his career, because up until this point, Crassus had been doing absolutely brilliantly. So... I think this is also one of the uh, the core uh, core achievements of Gareth C. Sampson's book, a brilliant book, by the way, which is called "The Defeat of Rome: Crassus, Cari, and the Invasion of the East," uh, released by Pen and uh, Sword Books. Uh, it's actually one of the best best studies on this entire era. I deeply, deeply recommend it uh, for the listeners and for anyone who is vaguely or even remotely interested in in the uh, Roman-Persian wars or just the Roman-Parthian wars in general. Yeah. So I really think of it as a great book. Uh, I should probably uh, write it down somewhere so that you could also share it with your listeners as, as well. Um, We'll put it in our, in our show Absolutely. notes. We'll put the links in so, our show notes. But in spite of the Parthian situation itself being quite crappy, there was some achievement to this. You know, Finally, they had taken Seleucia and Babylon. So the Parthians were now finally united. Now, they had taken a severe beating, a decades of indignities, but now they have come out united in the process. So it's important now that whatever the Parthians would do from now on, they would do as one. So what happens is that during spring, early spring of 53 BC, we now see the Parthians trying to assess the Roman situation now. Because now that they have taken over Seleucia and Babylon and killed Mithridates and, and firmly put Orodes back on the throne of Parthia as the undisputed king of kings, what happens with the Roman claim in Mesopotamia? It kind of has to disappear, right? They, they don't have any claim uh, to support Mithridates because Mithridates didn't exist anymore. So what actually happens here is that the Parthians send emissaries to Syria and 
Plutarch records this in a rather dramatic fashion. You know, I think maybe parts of it is, is fictionalized, sort of to uh, match up with the aftermath of the battle. I think uh, a lot of people are probably familiar with the um, repartee of the chief Parthian uh, uh, diplomat, Vagisus, as he is answering uh, Crassus as to... Um, what the cause for the war is because Mithridates is no more. And Crassus replied, of course, that I would reply, you know, in the halls of, uh, in the halls of uh, Seleucia. And I think uh, this is where Vagisus was actually laughing and saying, oh, Crassus, hair will grow on, on my palms before you will see Seleucia and the like. And we have to kind of stop her and say that Maybe this is a little bit made up because the intention of the Parthians was not just to see what the Roman intentions were, but, but, but also maybe to bring the hostilities to an end because they also knew that the, uh, the Roman war was not really authorized by the Senate. This was actually a private war when we, when we think about it. This is the key feature of the triumvirate era that you now see these private wars coming up, not really sanctioned by the uh, uh, Senate. In fact, uh, parts of the Senate had had opposed this war tooth and nail, and one of them had had actually cast a curse on Crassus as he was departing to to the east. Uh, And some, Plutarch included, had had accorded this curse as efficient, that because of the curse, Crassus had to lose the battle and the like, but this is this is hindsight, of course. This is uh, this is a little bit like uh, the Pygmalion effect coming into play here. That uh, some of them wanted to see Crassus lose so bad that he actually did lose, but they jinxed him in a, in a kind of in a in a sense. So it's it's a little bit interesting to see the treatment that the Romans gave this battle in the aftermath, because. Let's face it, there wasn't that much opposition to Crassus' adventure because he was still governor of Syria. He was still invested with an official uh, mission uh, at the behest of the Roman Republic. So I think the Parthians in this diplomatic parley were seeking an end to hostilities, possibly uh, through uh, economic concessions or a financial bribe or the like. because they knew that now the right was with them to uh, broker for peace, now that they had uh, settled their own dispute over succession, over who is going to rule as king of kings of the Parthian Empire. Uh, but Crassus seems recalcitrant. He, he wants to uh, turn the Parthians into clients. And I think he senses a weakness with them in this meeting, that, oh, they are now trying to sue me for peace. They are really weak if they off, if, if all they do is just want to talk, not give me a battle or anything. They have to be really weak. But, of course, nothing could be further from the truth. Now, it, this that doesn't really mean that the Parthians were at, at a super strong state, but now they had been unified. Now they were much more a force to be reckoned with. And I think this is also why we see this dramatic injection of the chief diplomat saying, oh, but hair is going to grow on the palm of my hand before you see Seleucia, you know. I think this is an injection. 
of a sorts from uh, the part of Plutarch and the like, or possibly from the Mesopotamian scribe that he had gotten the story from. Anyway, during this entire time, Crassus, who is otherwise seen as this overtly cautious, uh, this overtly cautious personality, is now also framed uncharacteristically as a conquest-crazed wannabe Alexander dreaming of distant India and Bactria. And this is in the same account, the same account of Plutarch, where first Plutarch condemns him for being too cautious and now for being megalomania, completely power-crazed, and wanting to replicate the successes of Alexander the Great and the like. So we have to also take the sources and their hostility towards Crassus with a great pinch of salt. Uh, so we see that the meeting, though, even though it might have certain fictionalized aspects to it, there contains some vital uh, clues to it, uh, which points to why Crassus opted for the route that he did. Uh, because as Crassus says, I'm going to state my answer in Seleucia, this also means and confirms that Crassus intends for Mesopotamia and into the capital region of the Parthians in Babylonia. And this is also consistent with, the, uh, with his support for the claim to the throne uh, of Mithridates. So what he does is basically he's, he's playing a little bit stupid here on purpose uh, and hoping to preserve his cause for war. Uh, so I think Crassus knew deep down that Mithridates was probably killed or had faced a demise or the like. Uh, maybe the Parthians can see it. We, we don't really know the, the details of this meeting. But the Parthians nonetheless sent for ambassadors, uh, maybe either to uh, uh, inform him about that now the succession crisis had, had been settled permanently and that therefore the cause of the war had been removed. So what the... Uh, Emissaries probably really intended for was to buy for more time and to stave off the coming Roman invasion through diplomatic settlements. Because I think deep down the Parthians knew that Crassus was not simply going to demobilize. He, he was simply just up to no good. He had a reputation, this man. So with troops that were quartered in West Mesopotamia and in in Parthian Syria, he wasn't exactly going to demobilize, certainly not empty-handed. Uh, so probably they were thinking, maybe we can bribe him off or the like. But as you can see, they, nothing came about through this meeting. And there was another fear. There was uh, a fear that the Armenians might intervene on the Roman behalf. And this is actually where things take a very interesting turn. Uh, as they still had the Armenian invasion of Tigranes the Great fresh in their memories. So I think that the Parthians realized that if they were forced into a war with Rome, Armenia would inevitably have to side with the Romans because they were a Roman client at this point in, in the history. So if, if war was inevitable, then Armenia would have to be knocked out of the war. Otherwise, they would be faced with a two-front war. So 
Armenia, just like the other uh, clients at, up until this point, they were pledged to provide aid to the Romans in time of war. And uh, so we kind of we kind of see the Parthians being in a race against time. There comes an episode that I like to call the Armenian connection, uh, because it's really not that clear cut. You know, sometimes, you know, you have clients supporting you with troops and the like, but sometimes the clients are often the source for a lot of the problems in the region and a source of headache for a lot of the greater powers in the region. So this is what actually happens here, that as the Parthian delegation is departing, after almost immediately afterwards, and probably the Parthians were aware of this, an Armenian delegation arrives in Syria. And it was a royal delegation, no less, headed by the Armenian king Artavazdis II, uh, at the head of 6,000 armored cavalry. Now, Artavazdis uh, is trying to strike some kind of agreement with the Romans. Probably Artavazdis knows that the Romans are going to go the route of Mesopotamia. And Artavazdis is actually pitted with his own issues here. He's actually himself in something of uh, a position of weakness because he fears a Parthian invasion. That's actually what's really taking place here. Now, the records say that Crassus should have taken this route of Armenia because it was more difficult terrain, more favorable uh, to infantry, and that, and, and that the Armenians would have given him more in terms of reinforcements, like 10,000 armored cavalry, probably cataphract cavalry, 30,000 additional infantry. But here's the issue. This delegation did not arrive earlier. This is a little bit suspicious. Why did not the Armenians arrive a little bit sooner? This is cause for suspicion. And Crassus ultimately declines this very dubious overture, uh, which is something that modern commentators have often derided. Uh, some have even called it a blunder, but I consider this to be a false judgment from them, as does Gareth C. Uh, Sampson, because it relies again on hindsight and, and even wishful thinking. Uh, Crassus had actually rightly gathered that the Armenian offer was an empty gesture uh, because the Armenians were actually fearful of Parthian invasion and sought Roman protection to the opposite. So as you can see in the offer saying, come through our lands, we will offer you additional uh, troops and supplies and the like. But what actually took place here is that Armenians were actually fearful of getting invaded this was not some 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 uh, kind-hearted gesture that the Armenians were willing to uh, were willing to uh, simply help the Romans because of the kindness of their hearts or because they were simply pledged to it. No, they wanted to save their own skins essentially. And I think Crassus, uh, in the record, he 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 kind of rebukes Artavazis in in kind of rude terms, but. You can almost see where he comes from if you put yourself in Crassus' shoes at this point. So there's a false judgment from a lot of uh, modern commentators on this, which I, which I think has to be rectified because uh, we rely too much on hindsight and sometimes on rose-tinted glasses to see things 
And we, we, we often judge history from the consequences and not from causality, rather. So, uh, the look a lot different from commanders who were actually in the field forced to make a decision at the time because, hmm. um, I mean, from a lot of the historian who write about the event like maybe 100 years prior th there's a lot of wishful thinking involved absolutely i think this is also part of the fact that we now have the luxury of reading the history and and having the ability to pass judgment i think it's essential to be able to pass judgment on uh, certain historical episodes i think it's 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 kind of naive also to think that oh history is history we can't really do that much about it but we we have a certain privileged position these days now that we have all this information but with it also comes the balance of judgment how do we correctly judge a historical episode or a historical character or his tenure or his career and his achievements his legacy and the like and Honestly, it's it's not an easy line to walk more more than often, but we have to also moderate ourselves and uh, and have a more balanced approach towards history, not because of its consequences, but also because history itself is part of a much wider causality. So I'm therefore not as uh, inclined to put blame on someone when things really, really take the wrong turn and the like. There's a lot of factors involved here. History is 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 awfully complex. It's it's very complicated, in fact. Possibly, yeah. We're basically looking at this without the fog of war, right? We we know both exactly, sides exactly. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. We we very often ignore the fog of war, which which shrouds these historical personalities and the decisions that they were uh, that they were pitted against sometimes the decisions were were forced upon them sometimes they had the time to uh, contemplate on them and the like but i think overall crassus has been almost unfairly judged mal malignantly uh, judged on this because some say, well, he should have taken the Armenian route, but this is not necessarily a much better path because later on in the Roman Parthian Wars, we see the Romans taking this more Armenian route and it doesn't yield them any better results. Like, for instance, during uh, Marcus Antonius' uh, Parthian War, uh, which ends up in an absolute catastrophe, uh, mostly because he didn't do like Crassus did, which is to quarter your troops in the winter. So as we can see, the Armenian route is not automatically better. In fact, for Crassus's uh, objective, for his goals, for his end game, which was always Mesopotamia, Armenia would prove to be an enormous detour. It would cost him much more money, and Crassus hates to lose money. We know that already. So he rebuffs the Armenian offer, and we I kind of have to hand it to him because this might also have been a trap, you know, for all Crassus could have known. Maybe the Armenians were in cahoots with the Parthians and would just set upon them with all this cavalry and all this infantry, and then someone else swoops around in Syria, which would have been left undefended, you know. So absolutely, the fog of war 
we must never forget it. We must never forget that there's a fog of war. Look, all too often we have this very mistaken notion that to lead an army, you have to either be an idiot or someone who is a complete military mastermind. I don't think things were as binary as that. Sure, we have seen certain blunders throughout history, but make no mistake, anyone who is leading an army, that is not a small task. That is not a small task. We have to remember that most people are not cut out for it. And we have to also gather that during the age where there's no electricity, where there's no internet, no running water, no canned foods, essentially. I mean, not, not the kind of canned foods that we would have today, maybe preserved foods of the kind, but I think we have to really hand it to them that even if they lost a battle, the fact that they were able to muster so many men and lead them onto a campaign and have the entire logistical nightmare of keeping it all together on the march, I mean, that is not a small achievement in and by and of itself. And I think this is where we sort of have to skip the video game analogies because they empower the player, but they don't put them right into the middle of the fog of war. They don't put them in the middle of having a bunch of, have, having thousands, tens of thousands of fully grown men armed to the teeth, ready to mutiny at any point if they are dissatisfied to a certain limit. This is something that when, when most people, and I tend to call them armchair generals or armchair uh, marshals and the like, sitting there smoking their pipe and, and reading the books, I don't think they have that pressure on them. I think that when they read this and they read about the outcome of the battle, that's where the judgments really begin to pile up. So I think it's also uh, important that, that we, we have a fair and objective view upon the history itself, not due to consequences, but rather due to causality. So, uh, as we know here, uh, Crassus had opted out of the Armenian route due to all of these considerations. And also, because there were Mesopotamian routes and because there were also other clients, such as, for instance, the Alcadonius of the uh, Rambei uh, tribe and also the, uh, the uh, Edessans under King Abgar II, also pledging support to Crassus, there was no immediate reason to go the Armenian route anyhow. I mean, he was going to get his reinforcement from his, from his, uh, from his vassals anyway. Uh, so the Parthians probably understood during this entire time that, okay, we just sent emissaries to Crassus to parlay with him. Now we see the Armenians, not just any Armenian delegation, a big one, 6,000 cavalry led by their own king, who, who is actually appealing to them to come to my lands, you know, come to my lands and, and let's, have, uh, let's, let's have the campaign through there instead. So I think this information was really telling to the Parthians, why did the Armenians stall up until this point to send not just emissaries, but their own very king to parley with the Romans? 
unless, of course, something was was fishy up in Armenia. What was happening in Armenia? Well, as it turns out, the situation in Armenia must have been of exceptional weakness because, uh, as we understand later on, when Armenia basically folds over to the Parthian cause, those so-called 10,000 cavalry and 30,000 infantry were most likely fiction. Those reinforcements simply did not exist. And I can say this with a great degree of certainty, as does uh, Garrett Sampson uh, and so forth. So I think Crassus took the right choice when he actually opted for the Mesopotamian route. And he was well prepared for a Mesopotamian uh, uh, campaign. He, he was well stocked in cavalry. He knew that the Parthians were, were cavalry-oriented, uh, but not cavalry as, as in entirely cavalry. And this becomes a, a very important later on as to how and uh, just how Serenus had managed to engineer the perfect Parthian army to deal with the Romans. Because even though, the, if, even though Crassus had rightly wagered that the, uh, that the Parthians were going to bring heavily armored cavalry, he, he couldn't have possibly known that he was going to face all cavalry, a force of all cavalry. Anyway, uh, so what actually happens is that the Parthians upon knowing that the Armenians must be in a state of exceptional weakness, devise something that Samson calls the Parthian Schlieffen plan, which is, of course, a, uh, a memento to the uh, German uh, Schlieffen plan, the original Schlieffen plan during World War I, uh, and to split forces uh, thus. And this is, of course, a strategy where you basically fight a two-front war by attacking the weaker ally and stalling the stronger ally and consolidate your forces after you've defeated the weaker ally to then wheel about and uh, strike at the stronger ally or force some kind of uh, conclusion to the war uh, or some kind of uh, uh, a diplomatic settlement uh, following a set-piece battle. So the intention behind this Parthian Schlieffen plan is to divide up the forces in two. Uh, the king of kings, Orodes, would head off to Armenia with the bulk of the military forces. No doubt infantry would have been included there as well. Um, setting off uh, to, the, to the Armenian capital, uh, which at this time uh, would have been Artashata uh, in the northwest frontier of the Parthian Empire, whereas Serenus would merely be assigned a smaller task force of all cavalry. Uh, and we're going to get into the numbers a little bit shortly, but uh, it would have been a smaller task force, all cavalry, along with the satrap Silacus, who had previously been defeated by Crassus uh, in, uh, in the Battle of Ikna. So I think uh, this kind of sets the stage for the battle that is to come here. Uh, but again, fog of war applies on both sides. When Orodes and Serenus had devised this Parthian Schlieffen plan, uh, I don't think Orodes was kind of expecting Serenus to be as successful as he, as he was to become. Uh, but to merely stall the Romans, to harass them, to inflict losses upon them. Uh, so 
this is where the Parthian Grand Campaign begins. But Serena's, of course, he has different plans. He, he is not just anyone, essentially. He has decided to take on the Romans head on. And I think that sort of uh, wraps up the uh, first important half of the first Roman Parthian War. I think that gives us an excellent introduction to the background that leads to this epic, epic encounter. Um, thank you, Amir. Uh, we're going to have you back to do the finale and the climax. Mm -hmm.